All right, welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan. Tonight I'm with Rob Janelle here with Dr. Pam Eisenbaum from ILIF School of Theology, who teaches biblical studies, Christian origins, and also is at uh, the Center for Judaic Studies at DU. And before we get going tonight, make sure you go to brewtheology.org, see how you can partner and sponsor with us. We're on social media, guys. Brew underscore theology on Twitter, Instagram at Brew Theology, along with Facebook. Shout out to all the chapters. We have eight chapters across the nation. So, yeah, I think Winston-Salem is going to get going in January. So go Chaz. So tonight we're going to talk about the Bible. Oh, it is our birthday. Yeah. That was about Brew Theology's birthday, not Chaz. Right. But someday we're going to meet Chaz in North Carolina. All right. Because we're going to do Wild Goose. Wild Goose all the way. We're talking about the Bible tonight, which is a bit of a Wild Goose book. It's a li- not a book, it's a library. We'll get to that in a sec. So Pam's going to correct me on all my inaccuracies, but we're also going to ask her questions. And well, this is kind of fun. So uh, we have different backgrounds here, and I grew up Southern Baptist Evangelical, Janelle, Nazarene, Rob, Catholic, and now we're all kind of mutts in this room with other people. So Pam came to our gathering with about 50 people the other night, also interfaith, interreligious people who grew up with a lot of them. Um, this authoritative viewpoint of the you know infallible inerrant word of God, and then throughout the years, they were found in a pub with a quote unquote liberal scholar from Iliff talking about the Bible in a way in which their moms and dads would say, "You're going to hell because you're in the same room with Pam Eisenbaum." But I'm gonna tell you guys, I'm sitting across the table from Pam. We've we've met. She's amazing. She's not a heretic. Okay, so if you're listening right now thinking, "Who is this person?" Let's let's just let you speak. And um, what's your upbringing before you became a scholar? You know, what's your backstory? How'd this happen? Yes. Well, um, so uh, my father was in the military for a long time, um, and so most of my childhood we moved around. Uh, but I was um, I'm from a Jewish family, and uh, in fact, until me, nobody in my family, at least that we know of, had ever intermarried. Um, so that was already a big deal. Uh, but my studying Christianity was even a bigger deal. So I grew up in a pretty Jewishly conservative home. I wouldn't make it necessarily parallel exactly to evangelical Christianity. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's definitely a community and you understand yourself as belonging to a very distinctive, um, group of people. So still a bit tribalistic to a degree, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What made you want to become a New Testament scholar, specifically writing about Paul was not a Christian and diving into the Koine Greek and all that jazz? Yeah. Uh, Okay. I don't want to make that too long a story. Um, So when I was in college, uh, I I can't remember exactly how the conversation starts, but um, I say something derogatory about the New Testament to a person who identified as Christian, was newly Christian, actually. And um, that person said, how would you, you know, you know, you've never even read the New Testament knowing that I'm Jewish and pretty Jewish. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you don't know what's in it. And I was like, well, you know, why would I want to read it? It's like an anti-Semitic tract. And he said, well, again, if you've never read it, you wouldn't know. So I took that as a fair challenge. That was true. And so I went and got a New Testament out of the library, and I began reading it. I started the Gospel of Matthew, and I had cognitive dissonance almost right from the start because um, probably those who listen to this podcast would know Matthew's a very, very Jewish 
text, and I'd had a lot of Jewish religious education, so I was perplexed that it could be so Jewish, and that sparked curiosity that just, I took classes, I met people, and then it just kept going. So here you are. I mean, you're, I would say, as Ron Burgundy would say, kind of a big deal in <laughs> academic circles, and you probably don't Who's talk Ron that- Burgundy? Wait. A- Anchorman? Okay, so- Will okay, Ferrell? I feel, I feel. Well, this is uh, now I'm talking uh, comedy. Okay. okay. It's okay. We had, we had somebody comedy, back, back I, on the podcast uh, recently, it was Diana Thompson. I asked her if she liked Will Ferrell. She said no, but we're still friends. It's okay. I love Will Ferrell, but I don't see a lot of movies. I'm a Saturday Night Live committed yeah. fan, though, since yeah. 1975. Ron Burgundy would say you're a big yeah. deal, though. Uh-huh. So, um, you, okay. you, you, yeah, I know you're very humble, but okay. yeah. So, but yeah, yeah, now you're in this place where, I mean, you, you've studied like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, I mean, you were, you were there. That's which is pretty now anybody can get them, but back in the day you couldn't. So then uh, people come to you and they ask the question, "Is the Bible true?" Which seems like a strange question. That's what we're going to talk about tonight, that, and it's going to take us on many rabbit trails. So how do you typically respond? What's your initial response with that rolling your eyes at people when they ask you that question? Yeah, well, when they ask me that question, I sort of end up playing the role of pilot um, and ask them, "What do they mean by truth?" <laughs> Because uh, as we talked about the other night, I think what most people mean is historically true and something even more precise that they, they mean like, like New York Times true, exactly happened this way. Um, so they're not thinking about other kinds of truth, like when you read a poem that changed your life or a novel that, um, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know... I do think that things matter when they're historically true um, to people. In other words, when we see a movie or we read a book and we read that it's based on a true story, there is something very powerful about that. But usually the meaning we get out of it is whatever the story itself conveys. So now off the top of my head, I'm not going to think of um, the, the blind side. I happen to... See, I mean, I saw it a long time ago, but it was on television or something. I saw it again. And the fact that it's a true story is really, really moving. But the whole, the whole essence of the story would still be terrific, right? Even if it weren't. So, so let's do like a, a basic overview for those who are either rusty on their Bible or who um, or perhaps have never even... We might have, have listeners who haven't really read much of the Bible. As an SBC kid, you know, we had to memorize a lot of this stuff. However, we didn't know about the Apocrypha. And also, what we would say were, was the Old Testament, which, shame on us for even saying that, the Hebrew Scriptures was really the Tanakh. And so let's talk about the Torah, the Nevim, the Ketuvim, the Apocrypha. And then f- for you, like, how did all this stuff come together? And what's the overall purpose of all that? I mean, this is a massive library. You just asked a gigantic question. Yes, it is. I feel like we might want to explain some of those categories to your listeners. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, I, let's I, break that down for them. Yeah. So, so we, because some people just call it, well, we have a Bible and it sits in the hotel right, room. Right. And it, or right. on my nightstand. Gideon's Bible yeah. and, and the Bible, you know, it's in a certain order. So, right. I, I don't, I, let me say, we can come back to this later if you want. I don't have a problem with Christians that call the Old Testament the Old Testament as long as they also know <laughs> that it's not an Old Testament for Jews. But we, we can come back to my own kind of theological reasons for that. But a Jewish Bible and a Protestant Bible have the same contents, right? They have the same contents, but they're in a 
somewhat different order. And that order is theologically important. In a Protestant Bible, the prophets come at the end. Well, that's true, actually, in Catholic Bible as well, come at the end, um, pointing to Jesus, obviously. And um, and that would be the Nivaim that Ryan just mentioned, um, the prophetic literature. Um, and um, when Jews refer to the Nivaim, they mean more things than Christians do more. So the books of Samuel, for example, in a Christian context would be called historical books, not the prophets. But in a um, in Jewish canonical lingo, that's part of the Nivaim, the prophets. There's only three kind of parts to the Bible, not four, the way there is in a Christian Bible. Christian, I don't know what to call it, Christian first scripture. Um, in any case, um, and then of course the Apocrypha is there because um, all that material is Jewish text, right? So Catholics have uh, several books. I'm not even, I guess it's seven, I think. I, I'm pretty sure I could list them all if you asked me, but it might take me a minute. Um, well, we did do a, a, a quiz in, okay. in our live meeting, so okay. we might. But of course, also the the boundaries of the canon have varied more than you think. But in any case, generally speaking, in a modern printed one, you'll get these seven books and then some additions to other books. Um, Those writings or what is known, uh, the Catholic Bible today was the Christian Bible um, in both the Christian West and the Christian East until the Reformation. And it's Luther reading Romans 3 by the way, at the beginning, where he says, um, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, up up until the time of Jesus is the implication there, right? So Luther says, whatever the Jews say the Old Testament is, that's what the Old Testament should be. So Luther takes out all these books uh, because they're not in a Jewish Bible. He wants the same contents, even though the order is different. Now, the reason Christians let's go back to antiquity, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of uh, Jewish scripture, included all those apocryphal works, right? The Septuagint contained all these other works. Eventually, in rabbinic Judaism, the rabbis don't canonize books like Tobit, um, Greek, Esther gets canonized, but Greek Esther is much, much longer than Hebrew Esther, these various differences happen. Nobody knows exactly why, because those are Jewish writings. Uh, the book of Sirach, which is an amazing book, or the Wisdom of Solomon, those are all Jewish writings. No one disputes that, but Jews uh, don't accept them as part of their canon. So that the Old Testament, sort of the history there is very complicated. And of course, we have manuscripts that have other texts in them, and we've asked whether, like um, there's a very early letter uh, we refer to as First Clement, Um, by a bishop named Clement of Rome, who's probably around the year 100, and that was a very popular letter. And one ancient manuscript, a big manuscript of the Bible, includes that letter with the other books of the New Testament. So I assume for that group, it's New Testament canon. Well, there's, there's different lists of early New Testament books, like the Shepherd of Hermes is one that I know was pretty well used all all around, but it didn't make the cut into the New Testament. Right. That's a particularly mysterious one because the popularity of the shepherd was huge. 
Like the book of Revelation is debated and debated and debated. And even though it's in the canon, it's still debated. And Luther didn't really like it, at least early in his career. Um, uh, so it's debated throughout Christian history. The shepherd, everybody seems to have loved it. And um, there's not in, in history, like if you look at the church fathers, it starts getting listed as a book that's okay to read, but not scripture. And then later you probably shouldn't read it. But they don't really give a lot of reason. There's not really heretical material in it the way you might find in some of the Gnostic Gospels where Jesus does some funky stuff that deviated from Orthodox Christology. So anyway, it might have just been that it's, it's really, really long and maybe it just was just too tedious to copy the whole thing. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I know one, <laughs> one of our community gathers who comes often, he had, he's always asking about the Gnostic Gospels, and he asked you that the other night. Like, why, why wasn't Thomas, you know, in, in the canon? And I mean, your response with that would be because of some of the, what you, what they would have claimed as unorthodox, like that Jesus is making things come alive and back again, playing with things. It's like, oh, that doesn't seem like Jesus. It makes him like too weirdly divinely human, you know, like a little kid who's mischievous. Well, yes, right. Yeah. There's some extremely entertaining, yeah. The, yeah. something called the infancy gospel of Thomas, where Jesus has superpowers as a child and abuses them, you know, like kills his friends and then is forced to resurrect them and that sort of thing uh, by his teachers. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I kind of wish it was still in. That's kind of funny. I know. Yeah. Um, there, would, would uh, one of my favorite reason? apocryphal texts is called um, The Acts of Andrew and Matthias in the Land of the Cannibals. I read this with Greek students because actually the Greek isn't very hard at the intermediate level. And and it, it's just unbelievable. Essentially, they go, Andrew and Matthias go on a mission to an island and they're cannibals there and they preach the gospel and they have, it. it's just utterly hilarious. I mean, it's just cartoon. It's stuff, you know, it's made for a graphic novel. But in any case, um, so the Gnostic Gospels, it's sort of a catch-all term for a lot of things, actually. But um, most of those, most scholars would say, are third century and later produced in Egypt. So they're not as early as the texts that do get canonized. Um, but so, so that's one reason. I think certain, there's a way in which things got canonized because people use them. I mean, the church fathers invent reasons and justifications for things, but also once a lot of churches are using them, it takes a lot to take them away, right? People don't want those things taken away. But but the Gnostic Gospels are also, uh, many of them, extremely esoteric. And one of the things about Gnosticism, my students at ILIF who want to often explode the canon and include all these things and whatnot, and which I'm, I'm sympathetic to asking all those questions, but when I show them the Gnostic Gospels, I point out most of them are meant to be elitist texts. They're not meant, they're meant to be obtuse and abstruse so that you can't understand them unless you're kind of an insider. Manichaean literature was this way too, sort of a real insider's club. You had to develop a certain kind of in theological and spiritual insight. So, so they're highly elitist. So, uh, so that's one thing. Some of them are deep philosophically and amazing. Um, uh, the Apocryphon on John, for example, I would count as one of those. 
but they just, yeah, they vary a lot. We use it as this group, but it, they, there's actually a lot of different texts that get collected under that title. So to kind of stay along that same um, theme there, so with the Gnostic Gospels, would you consider the Gospel of John, whether John or his followers wrote it or not, uh, sim- in a similar vein to the Gnostic Gospels? Because it's so different from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Yes, Luke. it is. It is, absolutely. Um, I think that, uh, okay, this is one of those thorny scholarly problems that scholars endlessly debate. And I don't know if it's really interesting to anybody else, but, um, uh, but I'd say the, the, the more mainstream view these days is that we don't really talk about anything called Gnosticism until at least the second century and more likely the third century. So that, so that Gnosticism, as we think of it, doesn't exist in the time the Gospel of John is written. Now, having said that also, the word Gnosticism sounds like it refers to some sort of movement, like, I don't know, evangelicalism or Judaism, whereas that's a scholarly term for a whole kind of constellation of things that we've identified that's a sort of what later became a deviant form of Christianity. Um, And I would say the the one thing Gnostic Christianity has in common, and by the way, the origins of Gnosticism are heart, hotly debated, whether it's originally Jewish or Zoroastrianism, or that, that question has not been settled. But most people think that the kind of seeds of it are proto-Christian that then influence Christianity. But the, the one thing I'd say all Gnostic texts have in common is this elaborate cosmology, mm. like the world the universe is so much more complicated. There are levels of existence and spheres of existence that do take some study to actually master. Do, do they have their own creation myth then? Uh, yes, and they have more than one in some cases. Some of those are, uh, some of the Gnostics wrote amazing commentaries on Genesis. Um, in, in many Gnostic traditions, In so... There, some scholars talk about Valentinian Gnosticism and Sethian Gnosticism, and we're not going to get into all that. And frankly, I'm not an expert in, in all that compared to many of my colleagues who know a lot about it. But um, I'm forgetting which text it is now um, that writes about Genesis, which Gnostic text, but it's sort of a commentary on Genesis in which, and it's a, a brilliant commentary, in which, uh, in the Garden of Eden story, the only person who tells the truth is the serpent. So in this reading of the story, the -hmm. fact that the God who created the world is also referred to as a jealous God, is is the God who um, sort of gets mischievously away from the highest God and wants to dominate something else. This is a lower God who creates the world and creates the world to glorify himself, (laughs) which if you read the Hebrew Bible, it says that a lot, to magnify the name of the Lord. So this, this God won't let people worship any other gods, is a jealous God. So this God keeps knowledge from people. And if you think about it, in the Garden of Eden, what's the tree that they're not supposed to eat of? The tree of knowledge. But it's the serpent who gets them to eat. So the serpent in this story is like a proto-Jesus incarnate in a snake who tells them the truth, right? And of course, God had said, if you eat of this, you'll surely die. And they don't die. 
you know, depending right on how you eat, yeah. up, eat, read the story. And so um, the serpent is the hero of that story. And it's, but it's a, believe it or not, it's actually a very careful and brilliant reading of Genesis. So I don't know how I got off on that whole business. This is um, great. No, no, we, we <laughs> well, love I rabbit think, trails. I think that, I mean, this sounds like an innocent question, but as someone raised in evangelicalism, like we were always warned that if we read these things, they were going to destroy us. If you read the Apocrypha or you read the Gnostic Gospels, like you are playing with Satan and you are going to lose your salvation. And I don't know, I guess I'm just kind of curious, like do you encounter that view in some of your students or something similar? And and what would you say to, to God-loving Christians that have been taught this about like, you're not going to die if you read the Gnostic Gospels. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, well, a close friend and colleague of mine who used to teach at Iliff and uh, doesn't teach there anymore uh, was a devout Episcopal priest as well as an academic. And he used to say when these questions would come up, because we sometimes taught the introduction to New Testament and Iliff together, oh, okay. which was really wonderful. And I remember one day it was a student who's actually Greek Orthodox who asked this question, who is because we often assigned the Gospel of Thomas as a required reading in the intro to New Testament because it has the sayings of Jesus. We compare it to Q. We do all that stuff. So, um, and this student was very upset about just being required to read the Gospel of Thomas. This is at Iliff, which is a pretty open place, right? And... Um, Richard said to him, do you believe God loves you? And the student said, yes, of course. And he said, there's nothing, there's no written text in the world then. If you have faith in God and God loves you and will take care of you, there's nothing you could read, no question you could ask that would somehow, without you yourself willing it, lead you in some and do that to you, unless you believe that God is malevolent, unless you believe that God is not all good. And so I thought that that, that that's right. Let, let me say one other thing um, to answer that. It's sort of a, um, what I'd call a theology of scripture, a hermeneutical yeah. observation that a great rabbi scholar made in the early 20th century his name was Solomon Schechter. He's one of the first people to have a professorship at Oxford in Jewish studies. And at one point, he commented he was kind of disappointed in many of his Jewish students at their lack of creativity. And he said that every generation of Jews is obligated to say something new about the Bible or else it isn't the living word of God anymore. He was, he was complaining that his students were imitating him, were, were like too respectful yeah. of him. And so I, I've often thought that, yes, if you call it the living word of God, if you have no creativity, you're not an active reader when you engage it, it would be sort of a dead text. And again, I don't want to stereotype evangelical communities or in, in general. Oh, you don't have to. Bible. We'll say it. Okay, yeah. Um. But I do think this is a good transition into this is something called midrash and and you had mentioned this the other night at our table for like uh, the last five years i've gotten really into midrash because 
Like, this is fascinating stuff. And if only if evangelicals and Christianity, not just evangelicals, if Christians in the West could understand how to do Midrash well, and not because not just the whole I'm doing commentary to make an applicable point, like, no, like, fill in the gaps. Why not speculate, see what's happening? Where's God in this? Where's humanity in this? Who are the adversarial people in this? You know, and so do you think that Midrash could possibly change Western Christianity if we fully, not just understood it, but but uh, let it breathe into the text? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, it's it's a, I have a lot of, what do I want to say, personal feelings about interfaith relations. And so be, be, because I live in this world of bridging Judaism and Christianity, I'm also aware that I can somehow sound like, here's what Christians should think and do. Whereas I think, you know, it needs to organically um, come from Christian communities. Having said all that, I'm a lot looser about this sort of thing than I used to be. Um, because I also think that creativity within religions often comes from when people in one encounter people in another. If you just look historically, things are, we have Christmas trees because of the interaction, right, of certain, what we refer to as pagan traditions and Christianity. And um, so, Midrash. So, Midrash really sort of has its origins, well, I shouldn't, one, one sort of thread of its origins is that in antiquity, um, in synagogues, people read the Torah just like they do in, in synagogues today. And just like in synagogues today, Jews already in the, in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth century and on didn't, weren't fluent in Hebrew. The Bible, the Torah is being read in Hebrew and they don't know what it means. So we have these things called targumim and fortunately a lot of them get written down, but essentially there was a spontaneous translation as the reader read. And this per, these translations are very much like paraphrase. Frankly, I think of them, some of them border on like almost improv. Like, you know, the story essentially of Joseph's coat is blah, blah, blah. And they sort of go. So, so one, of, one of the origins of Midrash is in live communities and people engaging in scripture. And there's a movement among Jews uh, today, my synagogue has participated in some of this, where we um, do the same thing. Because the usual practice isn't we read the Torah in Hebrew still. Um, and in in my synagogue, we then do discuss it in English, or the rabbi gives a sermon. But there's not been a spontaneous translation, sort of line by line or paragraph by paragraph. So in, in my synagogue, there's a movement, I think it started in New York, but they came, like a troop that came to my synagogue where people in character, a group of three of them, it's sort of reading, sort of acting out without full staging the story, and they're interpreting it on the fly. So Midrash, uh, Midrash is also one of those things that's hard to pin down, but generally it refers to Jewish commentary, and it's characterized by this sort of imagination imaginative exercise and it's motivated often by filling in gaps in the text and that's where people can use their imagination and I do think if Christians just felt more freedom right and I don't want to say that no Kierkegaard Kierkegaard was a great interpreter of scripture it's it's not as if there's nothing within the Christian tradition to uh, Origen wrote a commentary on John in which he wrote I don't know 
close to 100 pages on the first verse, just pondering, um, mm-hmm. you know, what it means to say in the beginning was the word. Uh, this just leads to a whole, now a lot of that maybe abstruse philosophy, that's another way to go. But he saw that as commenting on the Bible and an act of great piety. So perhaps the difference is that when most Western Christians, not all do this, it's um, they're commenting on what they believe is factual, historical, even though it's all speculative. Whereas when Jewish people do it, it's here's a great commentary, there's a great one. And they're all speaking to a certain point of truth, but it's it's not about the like we going back to the word truth. It's not about getting it right. Mm-hmm. It's about wrestling with the text and letting the text wrestle with you, which I think Christians have a hard time with, at least from my background and probably yours too, Janelle. Mm-hmm. I know, Rob, can you can you speak to me as a Catholic? Like, was there any sort of like ambiguity in the text, or was it always a certain way? The my experience as a Catholic is there was ambiguity in the text in some ways, and and that's you know the Catholic the Roman Catholic relationship to the Bible, uh, seemed less, um, I'm not sure what the right term is, but, uh, rigid or uh, yeah, less rigid or intense, uh, in terms of the scripture itself. Uh, however, you know, the dogma of the Catholic church is very strong. And so the, 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 the guilt or fear in the Catholic church came from more from the, the dogma and sort of the structure of the church, the priest as the, um, the knower, and the, the, you know, the sage in the community. And, um, so, so it's interesting. I learn I learn a lot through the Brewer theology community about scripture and about theology essentially. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, the, you know, I'm doing a lot of learning through this whole process and what I found interesting, and I think you answered a little bit with Janelle's question is, uh, you know, and part of this may be selfish as a person who is in the education realm is, you know, you described the story of becoming a New Testament scholar, and in your story, you take a very, uh, actually, um, you take a stance of of openness to reading the New Testament, and uh, you sort of take a posture of openness or a posture of learning, and so. I'm interested in, and maybe, and in, in you're a you know biblical scholar, so maybe if I'm getting too far outside the realm, let me know. But uh, it's interesting to think about how we can engage Christians in a way that would allow them the space to take a posture of learning or a posture of openness that maybe doesn't exist right now. And I, that's a big question too, or a big um, thing to wrestle with. And I'm interested in your. Uh, commentary on on how that uh, has played out for you or thoughts or ponderings around that topic? So in my classes at ILIF, I think I have over the years started introducing more Midrash, partly because when this, if I have like a class in the early afternoon when people really want to take a nap, rabbinic stories are really entertaining. So sometimes <laughs> I just do it that, to wake everybody up uh, because they can be, they're so playful. And there's no fear in that play. I mean, these are seriously pious men who spend their entire day um, studying Torah, Talmud Torah, and the banter and the play that they engage in that then gets recorded is amazing. But one way to start with students is I think that reading the Bible can teach people, reading the Bible well, can teach people how to read, period. Um, I find that students 
just we take a parable and they read it and the students who've read it say in church or whatever they think they they know what it means and so when i ask them to slow way down so that we not only go verse by verse sometimes phrase by phrase so that i can i have to teach them the ambiguity in the text which is so strange. So one of the things in recent years I've been doing is um, the story of the stilling of the storm. It's a simple miracle story, so it's not too long. It's told in two Gospels, Mark and Matthew. Mm -hmm. If you read them quickly, it's the same story. Few, few words. Few words are different. No big deal. Those few words, if you're paying attention, change the whole story, just to give you one example, it's very clear in Matthew that Jesus gets in the boat first and then the others get in the boat. And the language of following, will you follow me? It's clear that whole theme, that the story's about discipleship rather than just a miracle in Matthew. If you're paying attention, you get some of that. Um, so that it's not the same story with just the changes of a few words. And, and that also means Matthew was a reader of Mark. And then midrashically, you could say, um, told the same story, but not quite the same story. So, um, you know, I do think there's various points in which you have something like midrash or Paul even engages it in a few points. Um, all right, a break. Yeah, no, that's why I brought the tequila over. All right, Dan, we're doing some tequila. We got whiskey tonight. Dan, you should be here. We miss you, Dan. I discovered that Ryan is a Spurs fan. I'm. Oh, this is going to be on the way. Keep keep talking. Can I we're going rec to record this. Okay. <laughs> this will be on the podcast. Spur Spurs break. What's to be like a music Spurs break. a musical Spurs Go break? Ahead. Spurs Spurs break. <laughs> I arrive here this evening and to find Ryan. Well, first of all, I arrive here this evening. The television is on. I walk into the house. Nobody's around. The television's on. A basketball game is on. I'm a big basketball fan. I'm a really big Spurs fan, and it's a Spurs game. So I spend Hallelujah. five minutes watching TV. Nobody comes to greet me. So I decide I should probably, like, go find everybody else. I come downstairs only to find Ryan in Spurs. Everything. Put, yeah. That yeah. surprises everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So who knew we had that in common? Yeah. This is great. I mean, not only do I love uh, looking at the scriptures from a Hebraic perspective, but now we share the spurs in common, mm -hmm. and you live down the street yeah. from me, we're going to be best friends. I might be over <laughs> Did here Did that lot. just happen? Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> and you like tequila. So, I like tequila. So there we yeah. go. On the last two stories, in there is kind of this phrase that Jesus says, do not be afraid, or don't be afraid. Right, that's right. What is, is there something more to that that we can't see in the English? Like, because I know that that phrase is used a lot throughout the whole Bible. Mm -hmm. um, what is God communicating to us when he keeps telling us to not be afraid? Broadly in the Bible, that's a great question that would take us off topic because the language of fear the Lord is also everywhere in the Bible. And I think the, this is where translation makes a huge difference. The, uh, we, use, we use the best we can when we pick a word from our own language, uh, what we call the target language for those of us who do translation. When we have a, a source language of anything, it can be 
you know, I don't know, Rousseau or, and the, or the Bible, and you then you want to translate it into English, you pick the best words you can. But what happens is every word has a whole jumble of connotations beyond the one you're using it right. for in this. And so the range of connotations differs with... Di- so fear in English really has no positive connotation. Right, right. Right? So where it has some, in particularly in Hebrew, because fear also means awe. So I think, I can't even remember, there's a couple of different words for fear in Greek, and I'll be honest, I can't even remember which one Jesus uses yeah. there. Um, so I'd have to look. So there it may be more mundane is, you know, get out here in the boat and don't, freak out uh-huh. <laughs> i know there's a storm uh but don't worry don't worry so yeah. um i just yeah, that's an question. interesting one when we're talking about interpretation and context like because that that is such a prevalent message um and so then are we, how do we interact with it in a way that's meaningful so we're going to get to these myths in a second but before we do that i i i'm a little bit selfish right now we're going to stay with a little bit of midrash not just the Spurs. We're gonna. Although we could do like a little bit of Spurs. They're losing at the moment. Come, it's a good. It's a. Oh, it's man. a. It's. it's the, they're yeah, losing to the, the game, Mavericks. Yeah, they are. But it's not over till it's over in basketball. That's, right. That's what I love about. And the basketball. great thing is, it's Kawhi Leonard's return to the NBA. There can be a twenty-point difference. You got five minutes left. That's what I just told you. The no. game is. It's game <laughs> yep. on. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially if you're the Spurs. And I have friends yeah. who go, "Why do you not? You should you know, turn it on with three minutes left." No. I'm like, no, because the whole game counts. Yeah, that's right. So you can check the flow of the game. And That's right. So, uh, so, so let's uh, stick with uh, Midrash. Are you guys cool with that? Moses and Midrash, yeah. Moses. So Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Torah right. from the Lord, 40 days. Right. Why 40 days? Right. And what's the rabbi that decides right. to like write right. this down? Um, right. This is great. So, uh, so this begins, this is how Midrash begins, with one rabbi asking another rabbi a question. Why did Moses spend 40 days on the mountain? Surely God could have just given him the Torah uh, on day one. And then uh, the whole golden calf thing would have been avoided and all those people who had to get punished. And then Moses wouldn't have to go up a second time and would have maybe curtailed the wandering in the wilderness. A lot of things would have gone better. So there must be a reason. So the rabbis then imagine a reason. And the reason is essentially this, um, that Moses needed to study Torah. He didn't just need to be given the law, that God took the time and the trouble to teach him Torah. And part of the problem is, for 40 days, Moses was not was not a great student. He wasn't real quick. So he, he didn't get it. And he kept telling God that he didn't get it. And God pretty much just tells him to shut up and listen. And Moses keeps interrupting. (laughs) And God finally says to him, look, it's okay if you don't understand everything, because several centuries into the future, there's a guy going to come along way smarter than you. And his name is Rabbi Akiva. And he'll explicate all this stuff and he'll explain it. So you don't have to worry about it. To which Moses says, I have an idea. Why don't you just give the Torah to Rabbi Akiva and save everybody a lot of trouble? <laughs> and, you know, God says what God says often in these things, Job, these are my ways, and, you know, you don't know my ways and all that stuff. The lessons continue. <laughs> Moses' frustration is not diminished. 
And so Moses says, look, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Um, if Rabbi Akiba is so smart and he's such a great teacher, maybe I would learn better from him. And so God says, okay, and zaps him into the future. And now Moses is sitting in Rabbi Akiva's classroom. Rabbi Akiva lives about 100 years after Jesus. So, so a long time after Moses. And Moses is sitting there in the back of the classroom listening to Rabbi Akiva give a lecture about the Bible. And Moses says to God, okay, I don't, this isn't helping. I'm just feeling stupider. I want to go back to Mount Sinai. So God takes him back to Mount Sinai and um, Moses endures the rest of the 40 days and gets it all. And what I didn't get into with you before is that um, the belief is that there's, um, if you've ever looked at a written Torah, there are these little seraphs on the letters and various things that don't have sort of direct semantic content and that that's where the mystery is held. So that therefore the Torah is always being revealed only as each generation needs to know it. And this story is supposed to sort of capture that, that on the one hand, God revealed everything to Moses, but he didn't get it all because the time wasn't ready. I think I used the example of electricity, didn't I, with your group, where obviously, uh, so um, Orthodox Jews don't use electricity on the Sabbath, and people often ask me, surely the Torah doesn't prohibit electricity since there wasn't electricity. But what the Torah says is you shouldn't kindle, you, you shouldn't spark something, you shouldn't kindle a flame. And so a light bulb, an incandescent light bulb, um, I know we're not using those so much anymore. I don't know what they're saying about LEDs, which now that I'm thinking about it is an interesting question. Um, but in any case, um, it was a new technology, and there are rabbis who actually wrote to Thomas Edison to understand how a light bulb came on, and the, the fundamental question was this. Does a spark, is, is a spark necessary to start it the way when you light a match, you um, to light a candle or whatever. And the, basically the answer was yes. And that's why it was prohibited. Rabbis write to, in modern times something called responsa. So whenever there's a new technology, a new situation, they then say what the Torah says. And in theory, this was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai back then, but Moses didn't understand it because there was no electricity. Nobody had the question. They had the answer, but nobody had the question. So it's, there's a theology of scripture that's built in for creativity, for every new, that Protestant Christianity, and I'd say this of main life, this is not a difference between evangelicals or, now Catholics have, it, have a little more flexibility because they understand church tradition to, to keep evolving. But there's no real mechanism I know of in Christian sort of hermeneutics, sort of theories of interpreting scripture that's, that sort of already exists built into the tradition, the way Midrash is in Judaism. And yes, someone needs to invent one that feels, you know, it's sort of indigenous to Christianity.